it's great to be uh, back with you, uh, having had a, a little little bit of a, a break. And uh, I'm joined by um, Hannah Beswick. Hey. Uh, hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. How are you? Where have I'm, you been? I'm very well. I've been in Australia. Yes, as, as well, you do. As, as one does. As you do, I, not as most people do. <laughs> I was in Australia for four days. Goodness How kind me. of a madness is that? Isn't that just about as much time as you spend flying and travelling to get there and back? Um, yeah, well, in it, total, it does feel a bit like that. I, I um, it takes. There's there's a new thing called the Dreamliner, which sounds absolutely marvelous. Sounds it, dreamy. It, it does sound dreamy. There, there's uh, it's a. Uh, let me see now. I think it takes the best part of 17, 18 hours mm -hmm. to get there. So it's a, it's a long flight. Yeah. But I used to go, I used to do this uh, when there was a change in Hong Kong. Mm. And I, w I always reckoned it was about 25 hours door to door. Uh, so this Goodness is this me. is better. Okay. Um, and um, they're new. They're new planes. They're only nine nine rows across. You know, it's a, a, a big plane. They're not sort of super massive. Mm -hmm. So three rows, an aisle. Three rows, an aisle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, they, uh, you know, it was just it was a it was a, an easy journey. Let's put let's put it like okay. that. Quite an easy journey. Can you sleep on planes? Okay. No. I'm, okay. the, I'm completely the wrong shape. Yeah, yeah. I'm too. Uh, I'm too square. No, I'm too. <laughs> I'm too long. Right. So, so I find that um, I, I get. I'm, I'm, one of these days, I want to talk to somebody about this because I get this real strain in my chest. Yeah. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter what I do with my legs, where I where I put them or anything. Just sitting after a while, I get a real tension. So I'm one of these people. I need an aisle seat, mm -hmm. and I'll get up and walk about as much as I. As much as I possibly can. That's pretty um, good. Yeah, but I was there for it was another one of these Fame Lab things that we've talked about on the, yeah. on the show. Uh, I do a bit of training for them. They're in thirty. I think this year there's twenty eight countries taking part in the Fame Lab competition where you have to wow a general audience with a chat about science in three minutes. Yeah. And when they get their finalists in one of those twenty eight countries, they will organise a. Um, uh, a kind of a training two-day uh, training event which they call a master class which Ooh. i love it's called a master class because i get to take it which means i'm the master <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um uh yeah so it was australia's turn so we nearly in fact that's it i think uh, there's no one left now and the fame lab competition happens in the second week of uh, june up at the cheltenham science festival oh wow so if you want to look at what's happening at the cheltenham science festival go to the cheltenham science festival just google cheltenham science festival the um, program will pop up and you'll be able to see what's going on and what there are tickets left for yeah uh, there'll be quite a few things sold out but lots of other things that you can go to so and fame lab will be one of those things. Um, I'm pretty confident in guaranteeing there'll be tickets because it's being held in a big venue. Mm -hmm. There'll be tickets for the final of that. That's great. Yeah. So that's me. Yes. And last week, so there's no Andrew this week. No. I notice he's not. <laughs> no. You noticed. No, we, uh, we, we were talking earlier and he's not too great today. He's not very well. No. So he's taken, um, uh, taken the day off. And uh, it's just thee and, thee and me. Yes. We're going to hold it all together. But sending very warm uh, wishes to Andrew. I hope he gets well soon. What what's happened to you? Because I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Have I seen you since before the bank holiday weekend? That we I had? just can't remember. I don't think so. Well, on the 
during the bank holiday weekend, I went down to Kew Gardens in London and ah. went to see the Tempera House that they reopened. Ah. So they've sort of replanted it all, repainted it all, um, and it, it's lovely. Really great. It's huge. It's the largest Victorian glass house in the whole world. What does that mean? You call it a temperate temperate Um, house. So it's for plants that grow in temperate zones, which is not tropical and not Arctic, I think. Right. Um, In a kind of, I don't know, easy band between the... No, no, I'm just going to leave it at that because (laughs) I don't know and I don't want to misinform any of our delicious. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But you had a good cup because you're a plants person, aren't you? Really, you like. I your, like me some plants. You yeah, like me some I plants, mean, I, my, you've done a bit of plant study. Yeah, yeah. I got to look at some plants in my um, my undergrad at Manchester. That was great. Although it was zoology, I did look at plants as well because uh, almost all life relies on plants and them generating yeah, food yeah, and things yeah. like that. And inevitably, if you study biology, you study. Plants as well. You have, yeah. to, you have to understand how they work. You have to, as a whole, so like on. ecosystem as well. And, and yes. now I'm getting a little bit uh, mystical here. But Ooh. where is this? Is an interesting question. This, but we we've talked on the show before about how you classify things, mm-hmm. and we we had one of those mad classifications which came yeah. from li- we're not sure where it came from literature but it was alleged that it had, uh, it was an old chinese classification system um but it's interesting when you start to divide things up mm-hmm. do you get to a point where you don't know whether something is an animal or a plant um and it's hard i think that there are some know. some really um older like species that we that are still sort of around today or or that we have fossils of that really walk a line between animal and plant um i usually think that that sponges are kind of halfway along there as well because they're sort of they have some characteristics of plants and some some of animals as well and it's just it depends on what like why why do you need to classify it so it depends if you if you need to classify it because you're doing an experiment on plants that's when you start to look at like do we include these ones or do we exclude these ones that are really difficult to pin down as either a plant or an animal yeah. because they do um some things from both uh definitions so it doesn't there are some that do it doesn't necessarily matter that much that they that they tow a line. It doesn't really matter that they <laughs> that they don't fall into a natural binary. Well, I guess this is us, isn't it? We we're the ones who create the classifications for ease of studying. Them. Yeah, exactly. And um, so they, um, uh, you know, the fact they don't fit neatly into one mm. of our classifications is neither. <laughs> it doesn't make it yeah. weird. Yeah, it's an uh, issue with our own need yes, to classify just, things that's, into that's little what, boxes. N- yes, that's what nature has done. So. Yeah, the problem is with the classification. I remember a, a creature called a euglena or a, or a plant. Mm-hmm. Creature or a plant called a euglena because it's got a tail and it, it's, a, it's a single-celled organism, as yeah. I remember, and it's got a tail and it, it moves around and everything, and so, so it looks a bit like a, a bacterium. Mm. But it, it photosynthesizes like a, like a plant. Like a plant, yeah. There's, there's also like some super weird things. There's like a, a sea slug that... Um, so sea slug is quite quite obviously an animal. It moves around. It's got like a brain and things like that, or yeah. sort of a bit of a brain. Yeah. And um, but yeah, it um, this one kind sequesters. So it captures chloroplast in the food that it eats, and then puts that in its own body. So what's a, sorry, what's a chloroplast? A chloroplast is the part of a plant that. Um, 
uses the sun's energy to make energy uh, to make something it can use like sugars sorry make sugars um so it's the chloroplast is the thing that's really defining of plants because that's the thing that photosynthesizes um and this sea slug keeps these chloroplast in itself in its body and it photosynthesizes as a result so it's a slug that's very obviously an animal but it's photosynthesizing to generate its own food because it's the tricky devils. Yeah, sneaky. Have to keep an eye on them. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, so uh, our show, Love and Science, is all about science in the news and science behind the news. Mm. And so um, our first story that we've um, uh, picked this week is the... Uh, it, it's a BBC... It's on the BBC uh, website. Matt McGrath um, uses it. Uh, sorry, uses it, wrote it. <laughs> I, I, you know, you telling, I, I'm misspeaking the whole time. So what, if I say anything completely outrageous, right. uh, just call the lawyers and wheel me out of the, <laughs> wheel me out of the room. All right. Um, uh, Matt McGrath uh, mm. of the uh, BBC has put up this story, shocking human impact reported on world's protected areas. And it's a kind of... Well, there's a sort of a success story uh, behind this and um, uh, a lot of disappointment as well. Um, in 1992, as I understand it, mm-hmm. there was a thing called the Convention on Biodiversity, which most countries have signed up to, which basically said, yes, we really need to protect all, uh, you know, our sp- Species. We need to stop species becoming extinct. We need to create environments for them, protect their environments and so on. Uh, rather protect their environments rather than create environments for them. Stop their environments being eroded, mm. which is, leads to extinction. And it turns out that in a, in a new survey, about a third of all these protected areas have been degraded by human activity. Yeah. Which I find incredibly sad. It is. It's incredibly sad. It's incredibly like disheartening as well because all these countries have signed up to this, um, the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is to try and uh, safeguard what's called natural heritage, um, our beautiful landscapes, our natural world, and stop it being damaged by just our, our human business that we do, yeah. building roads, mining, yeah. cutting down trees, building houses and cities yeah. and things like that. But... Um, Professor James Watson, who um, is the lead author on this, he's commented that actually one thing that's missing in that convention signing is that people have to protect certain areas, but they don't have to report on how well they're doing on it. And what it's turned out from this research they've conducted, about 6 million square kilometres of forest, parks and conservation areas are experiencing intense human pressure. So that's the highest level um, that they measured at, intense human pressure, which includes mining, logging, farming. So even though these areas have been designated as um, conservation areas, then there's not strict enough control over um, those those areas being allowed to be have have roads built through them or um, power lines pass through them. So they're designated as an area, but no one seems to be really doing that much to to make sure they stay protected. Um, which is which is a huge shame because the biodiversity in those areas is still in cata- catastrophic decline because of our activity because we're not staying out of the areas that we've said we'd stay out of. Yeah, uh, apparently fifteen percent of the land and eight percent of oceans, which that surprised me actually. That yeah. was such a small uh, yeah. figure, just eight percent. Considering of the ocean, how huge they yeah, are, yeah, they are protected. 
But as you say, six million square miles uh, have a level of human influence that harms mm. the species that uh, live there. Yeah, this is the story that one third of the world's protected lands are being degraded by human activities are not mm. fit for purpose, according to a new study. Oh, well. Right. So uh, the next story that uh, we've got up. Uh, is all about uh, scientists. This is called Scientists Detect the Legacy of um, the First Stars. And um, we really feel the lack of Andrew <laughs> at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because normally we just say, oh, it's an astronomy thing, and he would just talk. Like, hey, Andrew, tell us about yeah, the stars. that's right. And then sort of about ten minutes later... We put on some music. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just you and me uh, handling this We'll thing. make the most of it. We'll make, we'll make the most of it. Well, look, as far as I can tell with this story, um, it, it means uh, that the astronomers have made the most distant ever detection of oxygen. Now, mm. uh, you, you, you might think, well, what's the, uh, uh, what's the significance of that? Well... First of all, the distance that we're talking about is... Well, I'm going to talk... In, in astronomy, you can talk in time or in distance. Yeah. Um, and um, they, uh, astronomers have observed in a galaxy of stars that existed just 500 million years after the Big Bang that there is oxygen. Mm -hmm. Now, the significance of this is that um, w when uh, the universe was first created... Mm -hmm. Uh, what was in huge abundance were very small molecules, hydrogen, which just has a single proton in its nucleus. It's a very, it's the smallest molecule, it's the smallest atom you can get. Um, helium, which just has two particles, uh, two protons, and it's uh, four. It has four particles. Two of them are protons, which is what makes it helium. And it again is a tiny little. Um, molecule or, 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 or atom uh, and a little bit of lithium which is the next one up and then there's nothing else until the stars start cooking so when, when all the matter started clumping together as it clumped together it got hotter and hotter denser and denser and it ignited and it turns into stars mm -hmm. and it's only in stars that a lot, all the bigger elements get cooked and it's only in the very densest, biggest, hottest uh, cosmic explosions in stars, uh, supernovae, as we call so the supernova, um, which is famous, of course, in science fiction. But it's a real thing, a supernova. Supernova cooks uh, the very largest molecules and atoms, um, out of which we're made. Mm. We couldn't exist if supernovae hadn't... If the stars hadn't died. If the st if stars hadn't died and exploded again and all of that sort of thing. And if these very, very uh, dense stars uh, hadn't existed, called supernovae. Um, because they're the ovens which baked all, all of the elements. So it's the... So going, going back to this story in particular, um, we found that there's oxygen... And the, uh, the story, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated thing to explain and, to be honest, for me to understand. Uh, but they can project back further and say that pretty much they're looking at the first 250 million years after the Big Bang, which is very early. The universe, we reckon, is about 13.7 billion years old, just over 13.5 billion years old. This goes back to 250 million years after the Big Bang, very early. 
and they they think that um, uh, by a process of deduction that uh, there must have been oxygen there at that time, which means stars must have been cooking at that time. So that's you know for astrophysicists and astronomers that's uh, and hopefully for the rest of us that's an exciting that uh, discovery that it was happening so early. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The galaxy, if you want to know where it's found, because I know you'll be desperate to know this, uh, is called um, Mac S1149 JD1. Catchy, like all of them. It is catchy. Uh, it's got, from now on, it's going to be my favourite galaxy. Mm. And um, there's an interesting story, actually, because um, there's, a, there's a telescope called Gaia, which the European Space Agency has got, got up. It's actually a double telescope, and it's mapping uh, the known universe, and it's doing an amazing job at that. Uh, it's redrawing the maps, as it were. It's the equivalent from uh, of uh, sweeping away those old maps which said, here be dragons, you know, in the olden <laughs> times when people didn't know what was there. And, you know, here be dragons, and uh, sort of strange guesses as to what was there. And, of course, now we've explored the Earth. This is a similar thing with yeah. the universe that it's doing um, by far the most accurate yet drawing. It found this um, this galaxy... And uh, but it wasn't able to detect what was going on, and so they zoomed in on it. They knew something was going on. They zoomed in on it with another telescope called ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And ALMA found that there was oxygen there. And the reason I'm going on about that is I just find it amazing that it wasn't that long ago when human beings were looking up at the stars and thinking, I wonder what they are. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't that long ago. No. Um, and uh, we go, oh, look, some, you know, some of them are moving. So they, they, maybe they're, pla you know, we called them planets, wanderers. And we started to notice things about, about the universe. Then Galileo came along, looked through his telescope and started to, you know, see that Saturn had rings around it and stuff like that. So we're, we're back at sort of, what, 1500s. Wow. Now we're... We're looking at the universe. We're looking back 250 million years after the Big Bang. I think that's amazing. It is phenomenal. So, yeah, there we go. And it's always a pleasure to uh, have your company uh, on a Monday afternoon where we spend an hour chatting about science in the news, behind the news. And, of course, great music, too. And uh, I'm joined, as very often, uh, but not always, by Hannah Bestwick. Um, Hannah, are you scared of spiders? Um... No, not in not when I'm in the UK. I'm not scared of them. I make it clear that I'm not asking you that because you are a woman. That is not a sexist statement. Good. I'm not assuming that you're asking you would be me because I'm the only other person in the room to <laughs> yes. ask. I'm, I'm not particularly. scared I don't of mind them. I, I really, I really quite like them. I think they're really interesting, and some of them they can can be, can be so beautiful as well. Yes, they can. They, they can, and of course, they're incredibly important. Yeah. Um, they sometimes they shock me. Because they, you know, uh, all of a sudden appear. All of a sudden appear. Yeah. Um, you know, you see a, a large one will suddenly come out of somewhere you, <gasps> like that. But I, 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 it's too much to say I'm scared of them. But amazing, a number of uh, the male members of my family mm. are scared of oh, spiders. Really? Yeah. I don't know why that is, but we. Uh, but they. Are you? No, I'm not. I mean, one of, one of my daughters is terrified of spiders. Mm. Uh, my son hates spiders. Um, and my stepson hates spiders. I did go so. through a period of not liking them, but 
I had a, I had a friend at the time who would always hugely overreact whenever she saw a spider and I started to find myself getting really anxious around spiders as well yeah. for some reason yeah but I seem to have got over that myself I I think it's one of those you know you you, you hear people saying that they're scared of I don't know stickers or something like that oh yeah you know, and it, it, it I think that must be about something else. <laughs> yes. It, it must be on the grounds that stickers aren't particularly, you know, I, it's very hard to see how they'd be frightening. Mm. But spiders, I think there's some sense to that because a long, long time ago, possibly in lands far away, mm-hmm. uh, spiders could be lethal. I mean, and they it, still can be in a yeah. lot of places. But we don't have to worry about that here in the UK. And um, Charlie Carter, who is, is actually a student on the uh, Masters in Science Communication course at the University of uh, the West of England. And he forgot what it was called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, UWE is better, better known as. Um, Charlotte Carter, Charlie Carter, um, has done a piece for us all about uh, arachnophobia. Today we'll be discussing our rocky relationship with spiders and why our eight-legged friends can cause so much discomfort. We'll speak to Dave Naish, Head of Education at Bristol Zoo, about how they help those most affected by these creepy crawlies. We don't offer a cure, we just redress the balance between spiders being in control and people are in control. Though exact numbers are difficult to pinpoint, arachnophobia is one of the most commonly reported fears. But it's the reason for this hardwired into us. A recent study has provided the first evidence that suggests that arachnophobia is an innate fear. The study is a collaboration between the Max Planck Institute and Uppsala University in Sweden, and it has shown that babies react much more readily to pictures of spiders. The group of infants were shown a series of photos, while researchers monitored their reactions, their pupil dilation in particular. Consistently, the infants reacted with larger pupils when shown the snakes and spiders, when compared to their reactions to photos of flowers and fish. As these participants were only six months old, they were too young to have yet learned this behaviour, so this stress response is thought to be an evolutionary mechanism, designed to alert us to animals that may cause harm. Despite being a widespread fear, for clinical arachnophobes it can be extremely debilitating, and Bristol Zoo is one of the few centres hoping to tackle this problem. Their Living with Spiders course aims to help people understand these eight-legged creatures and conquer their fears in a friendly and relaxed environment. We spoke to the coordinator of the course, Dave Naish, one of our remits here in the education section of the, the Bristol Zoo is to engage people in the natural world. And if they're disengaged for some reason, we want to try and get them back on board. And, and we also know there's a demand for helping people who suffer from phobias. Some of the most common phobias are animal-related. From animal behaviour to conservation, Bristol Zoo offers a variety of courses, but their arachnophobia courses are always in high demand as they tackle something much closer to home. These animals actually don't know why they're scary. They're not trying to be scary on purpose, it's just the way they're built. But we purposely called our course Living with Spiders. So the point is, the course is actually not about excluding spiders from people's lives, it's helping them cope with spiders in their lives. And when people get that realisation, you know, that spiders all around us, you know, we've got 650 species in this country, we have 65,000 species in the world, you can't live without spiders. They're, they're going to be there whether you like it or not, so the best thing is to try and live with them. The course itself involves a mixture of informative theory and targeted relaxation, with the help of Greg Najedli from the Hypnotherapy Bristol Practice. Over the years, we've fine-tuned the format 
that provides a mixture of information so people go away knowing more about what phobias are and also understanding what spiders do and why they like they are. And then added to that, we want to also include relaxation, hypnotherapy in the treatment as well. Then we want to put all those elements together and at the end of the course, we want to give the attendees a chance to actually put all the stuff they've learned into practice with encounters with a real spider. They know they can repeat that when they go home. Everyone gets something different out of it. The optional last session has a whole variety of things happening before the live spiders come out as well. But we do have um, tarantulas, and we have two different types of tarantula there. They're just for, if, if they want to touch them, they can do. But actually, the most important bit is after those tarantulas, is we actually have house spiders. And generally, it's the house spiders that people have come on the course about. They're the ones that people encounter in their daily lives. And, and what we do is we set up scenarios where people can practice encountering a spider here, in a safe environment, so that they can do it at home. So we just put a spider on the floor, let it run around, and then we, we help people to understand how to predict the behaviour, and then very carefully, with a glass and a bit of laminated card, pick it up. Fear is processed via complex pathways between the brain structures that are involved in memory formation and emotion, collectively known as your limbic system. The resulting fear responses are thought to have evolved unconsciously, a fear may develop due to a traumatic experience, which is then reinforced by repeated exposure. But there's also significant influence from the behaviour of your family and close friends. In light of this complex neurology, overcoming a phobia is an admirable goal. But if it's an innate fear, why bother? Why are spiders so important? It's very difficult to describe the impact of spiders because we don't really have any place for where there isn't any. Um, all we do know is that they are a really important part of lots and lots of food webs and food chains. So if spiders were to disappear, lots of other things would disappear as well. So there's lots of interrelationships and interdependencies around spiders. And, and what would you prefer? Would you like to have a house full of flies and ants and other small bugs? Or would you like to have a couple of spiders just controlling things beautifully in the corner there? That was Charlie Carter there uh, talking about uh, arachnophobia. And uh, yes, if you're interested in that, then you can contact Bristol Zoo. Um, you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM with me, Malcolm Love, and uh, Hannah Bestwick. Oh, that, that ending always takes me by surprise. That's because I'm a man, uh, Tame Impala. And... Um, we, our next story, as uh, Hannah said just before the music came up, is, is all about memory. Where, where do memories come from? And um, we, of course, we would assume that uh, our, our memories are, well, they're, they're in the, the synapses, the connections between um, uh, cells in, in our brain. That's, it's something to do with that. But there's a fellow who has done uh, some work on um, a creature called a Californian sea hare. He's a he or she. <laughs> no, he's a maphrodite. I can't say he's a he or a she. He's both uh, a, mar a marine snail. And do you, um, this is. A, have you seen this story, Hannah? Yeah, it is. It is incredibly interesting. So, as you mentioned, most people tend to think that the uh, memory, all our memories, are stored in our brain, and that's where they develop, and that's where they're stored and held. Um, but this. Um, this guy, David Glansman, uh, who's a neuro, neurobiologist at the University of California in Los Angeles, he believes that some of the memories um, 
some memories are encoded in something called RNA, which is a molecule that forms part of our genetic machinery. It's something that's used to um, transcribe things from our DNA into, and make it into proteins and things like that. So it is really important, and um, pretty much everything that has DNA has this. So, so in order to prove his, his idea, yeah. um, he, <laughs> he did a cruel... Which was he like did a, a cruel, cruel, a cruel, cruel thing. nasty thing. Yeah, I don't know how cruel it was, but uh, ba basically they, they gave the uh, marine snail yeah. a, sh a shock, didn't they? Yeah, they put wires into its tail, I think, yeah. um, and shocked it with electricity um, to make it sensitive to being touched on its siphon, which is um, just another part of its body that takes in uh, water, I think. Yeah. And the aim was to make it sensitive to being touched and they extracted some RNA that he thought would be um, holding this memory of this experience of having being zapped and put it into other sea snails. Yeah. And then they poked the sea snails that had the, had received the RNA to see if they would react in the same sensitive way that yeah. the one that had previously been zapped uh, yeah. was responding. And they found that in some cases um, it did. And it, they did seem to um, respond in the sensitive way after having received this RNA. Um, and Glansman has claimed that this is showing that there is memory encoded in this RNA, but it has been met with quite a lot of scepticism. That's um, right. People are saying, well, it's... Uh, this is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because we, we don't actually... Th this experiment doesn't necessarily prove what uh, this fellow... Glansman. No, uh, it uh, doesn't. Says. It's. I think it's quite quite it's risky to think that it would do as well because yeah. he sort of he sort of had an idea of what he thought was the case, yeah. tested something out on it, and because it didn't explicitly disprove him, he think he's taken it as support for his theory. Yeah, if that makes sense. Because one thing that was pointed out by um, Thomas Ryan, uh, who's at the Trinity College in Dublin, Dublin, um, has said that it's it is interesting, but it doesn't prove that they've transferred memory um, because. It, what they've done is they've transferred something yeah. from one animal to another, and that may have caused all manner of other uh, other uh, effects. So yeah. they could have ended up transferring something that just um, is a molecule that makes them sensitive. It's yeah. not necessarily a memory. It's just a molecule that makes them more sensitive to being touched. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's a molecule that has then gone on to sensitize other cells. Yeah. So, it's, it, you know, it, it, a memory itself is such a difficult thing to define. Absolutely. And this is a, I think this is a really interesting uh, um, study because what, what, it, what it's basically revealing, as does happen time and time again, mm. is that what the, the, the truth slowly emerges from scientists arguing with each other. Yeah. And it is this, let's do an experiment, this is what it means. No, that's not what it means. And there's this, this um, going backwards and forwards and uh, people being asked to, well, in that case, you've got to demonstrate this, you've got to come up with another experiment mm. to show this. And, and that kind of dialogue and argument is... Through that, that's how we find things. Yeah. And, and, of course, a lot, a lot of people say, oh, well, it turns out, you know, that uh, scientists have changed their minds about this, that and the other. Usually what's happened is, um, as w in fact, nearly always what happens is that uh, we, we get a little glimpse, like we're looking through a keyhole mm -hmm. at some part of nature and we get a glimpse and then we get another glimpse and then we think, ah, actually what we assumed here was right was wrong. Yeah, and uh, so on and so forth, and 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 it's the arguing and the people insisting that you do better experiments. Yeah, um, 
that eventually we and begin to put the pieces together. And larger, yeah. sub, larger groups of data and things yeah. like that. And, and you're right, it is like with um, a lot of experiments that are breaking new ground, it is like you're seeing, you know, out of context picture. And yeah. you try and work out what this is telling you, but you don't really know what the situation is. And it's until you get more and more information about um, the situation and the things involved, the moving parts in a mechanism, that you actually start to work out what it's really doing, what the effect really is and why that's happened, yeah. um, which is kind of the case with this experiment, is that it's it's in a very early stage. Yeah. And we can't say that definitely they transferred a memory because it hasn't been backed up by um, a huge volume of data, which is what we really need in these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we, th there's another story I just wanted to tuck in here. Yeah. Um, uh, which is, I, I, I don't know whether you, have you, did you grow up being plagued with m moths eating your clothes? I, I don't think so. I don't think they were ever really that big a part in my childhood. Well, but I did recognise the clothes moths. I do, uh, I do know that you we know had one, them. All uh, right. But, but I just, I don't think they were that big a deal. When I was a kid, it was very common. For, in fact, I was associated with older people or old people. Me too. Like my grandmother was um, moth-eaten clothes oh no you know the moth and the smell of mothballs yeah which is a, a chemical I know called, the smell of mothballs chemical called naphthalene and and uh, it's it's very hard to get out actually get the smell out of your clothes but people used to put mothballs in their wardrobes mm -hmm. and uh, for sort of waxy they put strange, them in um, waxy like taxidermy displays and things like that yeah as well. yeah and um well it turns out that um clothes eating moths are making a bit of a a, a comeback and um, uh, using traps, scientists have found that uh, they definitely are on, on the increase. So just for our area here, um, the southwest, um, the, the traps are... Seven, uh, when, they, when they put down traps, there's an increase of 17 per trap. Mm. I, think, I think that's right. So they, they organize a, there's an organisation, uh, English Heritage... So they're interested because they're custodians of tapestries and things like that. Yeah. Tabards and things. Uh, they're very worried about these moths. And uh, they, they did a study, uh, 42 counties in England, 5,000 indoor traps, and they published a result. Actually, no, it's not an increase. This is the actual number. The average number of moths in traps in the southwest is 17 which yeah. is really high it is quite high and i, I and they, yeah, i was going to come back to that yeah and they lay they lay their larvae in clothes which eats your clothes and it's the larvae that eat your clothes yeah and mm. they tend to eat natural fibers like um but animal based fib animal source fibers so uh, wool and things like that are often eaten by them but yeah it doesn't seem to be an increase what they're thinking is that there's there's so much anecdotal evidence of people saying you know there's a lot more clothes moths common clothes moths than i remember when i like a few years ago and um, they think that the amount of anecdotal evidence could suggest that there is a, a real a real increase in um in the amount of common clothes um, moths yeah. being found, um, possibly because people are use, wearing a lot less nylon and other synthetic fabrics, and that we're we're tending to steer away from those slightly more now. But um, yeah, there's, it's not yeah. been tested just yet. Yeah, that would that would make a change. They love old older places. Um, we've John Ford's wandered into the studio, he's which, is, in which the is really good because he's <laughs> he's up next. Don't forget, everybody, when the news is over, John Ford will be here. In fact, he's here right now. So um, I'm going to fade up a microphone for him to speak. Now, you, I mean, you must be of an age when you remember mothballs. Yes. 
<laughs> Should you be taking offence to that? No, I don't okay. know. I mean, can you still buy them? Can you still get them? I don't know. I'm sure you can. Well, I'm I remember sure you my can. family had a moth problem recently. These tiny little, very, very small moths that eat the edge of the carpet. Yes, yeah, to that's the them. point. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've she, got, she's had to chuck the carpet away and get yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, We've got old woolen carpets in our flat. And for, no, not ours, from a previous owner. They the love choice. them. <laughs> yes, yeah. they love them. Yeah. Well, you can't you can't always tell by looking at a carpet what it's what it's made of. Mm. But uh, they, yeah. they, these are woolen, and they absolutely love them. Yeah. But they, 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 the advice in in the article that uh, I read about them says you have to deep clean all your wardrobes and chests of drawers, shake out wool clothes and other animal fibre garments. Um, once clean, place clothes in a sealed plastic bag. That's right, yeah. Um, and for more delicate fabrics such as silk, put the items in plastic bags and leave them in the freezer for 12 hours or more. This is really <laughs> similar to how you get rid of bed bugs. Yeah, yeah. so we thought we had a moth problem uh, quite a number of years ago, and we bought one of these things, it's, like a, it's called a moth bomb. Yeah. Ooh. And you, you've probably seen it. You, it's, it's an aerosol can. Yeah. And you, you, you let it off in the room, and it literally fills the whole room with, with a haze. Oh. Of moth killer, really, yeah. and you can't go in the room for about a day, and you leave all the windows and doors shut, yeah. and this this hay and all the drawers and cupboard doors open, yeah. and it gets in everywhere. This this haze and yeah. kills off the moths. Yeah. Yeah. And you shouldn't smell? be in there. No, well, you have to be in there to let it off, but yeah. then you have to you run quick. Run, run <laughs> it's good fun letting it off, I can tell you. So, was there anything that we left out of the show? Um, actually, oh, there's loads heaps. of things that we left out of the show. Loads. This week. You could do with another. Be in next week, I have um, to say. I, I'll mm. just do one, and this isn't particularly scientific. But but it could be, because this day in 1916, 102 years ago, daylight saving time was introduced in Britain. Ah. This very day. Ah. Yeah, they, we started uh, oh, adjusting the clocks. And it was a London builder called William Willett who came up with the scheme. Uh, he presented it to, to the government. He wrote lots on it, um, but the government rejected it. But they introduced it the year after he died and then took the credit for it. But it was him that invented it. What an outrage. Yeah, they, they yeah. introduced it in, um, during the F World War I to, um, to help with uh, saving on fuel. Oh, right. So just, it's it's, it's always controversial, that, yeah. isn't it? Mm. People always yeah. argue about it and say, oh, no, it's very silly. Why I mean, it's not scientific as such, is it? Because it's something invented... I mean, time is something invented by... Mm. I mean, yeah. I, when I say time, I mean time's on the clock, invented yeah. by man for the convenience of man. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's, it's not a natural thing, really, I suppose. You know, no. a clock. I blame the Romans. They invented it. <laughs> <laughs> but the daylight saving time is being... You know, in controversial for years. And of course, every country in the world pretty much adopted it. Some yeah. haven't, but you know, others yeah, have. Absolutely. And it was it was recently that, that North Korea, when they uh, became buddies again with South Korea and uh, Trump and this summit, if it goes ahead and so on, yeah. they'd shifted their clocks half an hour out of kilter with South Korea, just to be awkward a number of years ago, and they, yeah. they've put them back recently, haven't they? So. One of the things we were going to do in the show this week, and we haven't had a chance to do it, is how um, uh, missing time, particularly missing sleep, yeah. and, and time zones and things like that can really uh, affect you. Anyway, guys, that's sadly it for the show. Don't forget to stay uh, tuned for John Ford uh, getting Bristol home after the news uh, from Hannah and me. It's been great to have uh, your company again. And uh, don't forget to tune in to Love and Science next week. Have yourselves a very good evening. Love and Science.